Amen. Amen. Hey, once again, we are in our study, the book of James, how to spot a phony Christian. What? Are you serious? Yeah. We've been seeing the last eight times that this is not a foreign concept in the scripture. If you read the Bible, Andy, what? I highly recommend. That's right, which I highly recommend. You'll see that these fakers are mentioned all over the place. What do you think is behind the terms false teacher, false prophet, false brother? What's that? A fake Christian. Okay, and we've been seeing the good news is God doesn't just tell us in the book of James and other New Testament books that this is going to be an unfortunate reality. He tells you how to spot them so you can deal with them. What's the problem? We aren't doing that anymore. And so now my theory and experience has been, and I'm sure yours as well as you put it all together biblically, that these fakers are not just in our midst. They've been allowed to be in our midst and to grow and spread like yeast in the lump. And now they're behind the pulpit. Fakers behind the pulpit. They're in church boards. They're leading so-called Christian worship. All that. And now they're dictating the church. That's why things are so messed up. Because we're not being Bereans anymore. We're not studying the scripture. And we're not taking these passages serious that tell us, you better watch out. Satan's going to plant some fakers in your midst. And you better not let that spread. Okay? But hey, we are uh, Sunrise Bible Church. We learn all the Bible. So we're going to continue in that journey. How do you spot a phony Christian? That's what the book of James is all about. But as always, don't take my word for it. Let's open that passage again, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, where God tells us why he's doing this. And the first sign, how do you spot that there could be a faker in your midst? And so obviously a faker means they're not a Christian. So what do you do? You witness to them. Hello. Have you learned that sometimes your witnessing involves not just people outside these four walls? Sometimes it's in the church, in the church facility, right? Those professors, I'm telling you, it's all over the place unfortunately. Okay. And let's take a look at this. And here's what he says. James chapter one, verse one through four says this. James, a what? A servant of God. And who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes. And this is the early church at that time scattered among the nations. Greetings. Verse two, consider it what? Pure joy, my brothers, whenever, not if, not let's not a foreign concept. It's going to happen. Whenever you face trials of what? Many or poikilos kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? perseverance and perseverance must finish its work. Why? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You may be seated if you can. Once again, we are honing in on this aspect of verse two and three. And let's take a look at that. We just read, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, let's Greek out a little bit and blow it up. Consider it a matter of, it's literally what it says, of unadulterated joy without any mixture of sorrow whenever you fall into the midst of variegated trials which surround you. Well, why? Because you know experientially, you've been through this time and time again, right? That the approving of your faith and that faith having been put to the test for the purposes of being approved and having met the test has been approved. Here's the payoff. That this approving process produces what? A patience which bears up and does not lose heart or courage under trials, which is all packed into the word perseverance. But how many guys would like to have that characteristic? Well, again, turn to somebody and say, bring on the trials. Because that's what James is saying. Just one of the good things that God will do that. That's why you can be joyful. Okay. Now, we've been seeing in our context, James is the first book chronologically written to the New Testament. It doesn't appear that way in the listing of the New Testament, but it is. It's the earliest book. And we've seen that it is a book full of acid tests that James gives to the early church, these Christians who'd finally gone out into the world. God had to use persecution to stir them up, to get them to do what they were supposed to do, to be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But they were stuck in Jerusalem, right? So he used that to get them. So they're finally out there. And so here comes the first book. James gives them acid tests. How do you know if you've got a faker in your midst? And we're like, well, why would he do that? 
Because Satan is Satan. He's evil. He's trying to mess up the church. It's common sense. He, he couldn't keep Jesus from, from dying on the cross for our sins and rising again from the grave. He, he couldn't stop the birth of the church. He can't take away your salvation once you're saved. Isn't that great? Praise God. And so then he just says, well, I quit. No, from that point forward, he's so stinking evil, he knows he's headed to the lake of fire, but he's now trying to pollute the church with as many fakers as possible so that even if, the, not just to mess up the church, but even if the lost come into our midst, they're going to get a false Jesus and a false gospel. And if that's what they're trusting in, instead of the cross of Christ, then they're going to join him one day in the lake of fire. That's what he's been up to. That's why the scripture says Paul dealt with this. I was in danger of what? False brothers, fakers, false teachers, false. They're all over the place, right? Now, here's the good news. James, then, therefore, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, first book in the New Testament, and he says, watch this. I'm going to give you many acid tests. How do you know? You might have a faker planted by Satan in your midst, and you need to either witness that person, and whatever you do, don't you ever let them in a leadership position. And if they are, you need to kick them out. Right? And that's what's not going on today, and that's why we're in the uh, unfortunate state of the church today, the apostasy. Now, the first test he gives us, we've been seeing, is trials. And you go, well, why would trials be an acid test whether or not somebody's a real Christian or not? Well, it isn't just do you make it through your trials because even lost people can do that, right? It's specifically what? Pure joy. Do you have joy in the midst of your trials, right? And why would that be an acid test? Well, because we follow Jesus, Christians, followers of Christ. Jesus what? Endured the cross for the joy set before him, number one. Number two, when you're a true born-again Christian, what happens at the moment you're saved? Bang, instantly you're indwelt with what? The Holy Spirit of God. And what's the fruit of the Spirit of God? If he's inside you, what's he begin to produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all that stuff, right? So therefore, this ability, supernatural ability, whether you like, uh, feel like it or not, that you can experience a supernatural joy in the midst of no matter what you're going through life if you're a true born again Christian, right? That's the acid test. The potential's there. The Spirit of God's there. And so if you never have joy in the midst of your trials, let alone joy, period, and you're professing to be a Christian, the only two theological options you have is you're either a baby Christian, you need to grow up, you're a backsliding Christian, you need to get back on track to your first love, Jesus Christ, or maybe the reason why you don't have the joy of the Spirit of God is because you don't have the Spirit of God, you're fake. And that's the aspect that James is bringing out. Okay, now, since we've been having a hard time, and I'm convinced it's because a lot of the fakers now moving up behind the pulpit, because we have a hard time just stomaching what we just read, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. What? I've been told ever since I got saved that if I sow a seed to this ministry and I can get a, a tenfold, a hundredfold this, and I can drive a Cadillac, and I can be rich, and have, I can build up my self-esteem, and be, you liar? But the church is inundated with that false teaching. So to come across this aspect that I'm not just going to have trials, but I can be joyful. What? It's such a foreign concept. Okay? We've been camping on this, and we've been taking a look. Yes, indeed, there are good things, reasons why you can be joyful in the midst of your trials. And, of course, James gives us the first one. We just read perseverance. Perseverance is that ability to become a complete, mature Christian lacking nothing. That's awesome. And when you get that, hey, yay, I didn't say your trial would be easy. I didn't say to be comfortable. I didn't necessarily say it feel good. But you know God's doing something fantastic with it so I can be joyful, right? And that's the first thing. But we were saying, hey, listen, he says, poikilos, many, various sizes, various shapes, various trials, various angles, various times of life. Well, we're not just going to have various trials and 
things that nature, God's going to do various good things with it. And James says, when you think forward to that, and when you know experientially, just like he brought me through that when he did something good, just like he brought me through this when he did something good, just like he's doing today, he's going to do something good. You could be joyful. So we've been camping on this, for, and we'll do the Lord willing, this study and one more study, and then we're actually off to a new verse. But then the rapture is going to happen, so don't worry about it. But anyway, that's right. Uh, but we'll see. But anyway, so we've been taking a look. What are some other good reasons? Well, James tells us one, perseverance. Well, then we've already seen he also does it to expose our sin nature, to keep us from becoming spiritually lazy, to cause us to be a blessing to others, to teach us that God is God and we are not, to make us more like Jesus, to keep us from wasting our lives, to make us more humble. Anybody else have a Nephilim cookie? Yeah, you got your own Nephilim thing. You don't want to say it. But anyway, that's right. Uh, to make us more joyful, to make us more uh, loving is what we saw there. Uh, to produce a powerful testimony, to produce a powerful character. And then last time, if you recall, it was to get us steered into a new direction, to get us to appreciate fellowship, to get us to build our faith, okay, to make it through any trial, right? You need that kind of David-like faith. Not afterwards. You need it while you're going through it. And God will use, just like he did David, he used a trial with a a bear to take him and build his faith up. Then he used another trial called a lion and it built it up even further. And that way that prepared him for his biggest problem yet called Goliath. And he had the faith to take it head on. It's the same thing with us, right? We all got a different Goliath, okay? But when you have that kind of faith, praise God, that's what you need. Amen? But poikilos means poikilos for a reason. We got many things that we're going to go through and many good reasons. Here's another one. The 15th good reason why God allows trials in life as a Christian is to get you to return to him. You know, again, I challenge the first service. I know it's going to be a strange concept, but maybe you guys heard legends, stories, maybe like on a, on a blog somewhere on the internet. Have you ever heard about those Christians? Not here. Of course not. It's way down south somewhere, probably in some foreign country, that they get saved and everything starts out great. And then all of a sudden they start to backslide or they get off track and they start getting worldly. Have you heard those stories? That never happens to us, does it? You ever had God use a trial to get you back on track with him? Because over time, you violated scripture. Oh, you're still saved. But the Bible says, don't love this world nor the things of this world, 1 John. Otherwise, the love of the Father is not in you. Have you ever been seduced by this world to love something more than Jesus, even though you're a born-again Christian? You know what God will do? He'll do some things to get your attention, like he did with Israel. He called these ladies cows. Oh, I'm not making this up, folks. This is straight-up Bible. This will get your attention, right? Watch this, Amos chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. Hear this, you what? You cows of Bashan on the mount of Samaria. You what? He called these women cows. Whoa, right? Uh, You women who what? Here's the problem. You oppress the poor. And crush the needy. And you say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. They're just all worldly, right? Uh, All that stuff. And those housewives, Beverly Hughes, all about shoes and this and worldly. right? Same thing went on with Israel. God blessed them so much and they turned the blessing into basically a curse. Instead of loving the one. He says that and he goes on. He says, the sovereign Lord is sworn by by his holiness. The time will surely come when you be taken away with hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. And what's he talking about there? Well, these people love fishing. And he was going to, no, the Assyrian army, the Assyrians were one of the most brutal armies in the history of mankind. Uh, In fact, the Assyrians, one of the techniques they would do, uh, people were afraid of them. Just the knowledge of the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. People would say, we surrender. 
because they had a reputation of being some of the most evil, vile uh, people, and they used that fear to their advantage. Uh, For instance, they would literally skin people alive. They also are the ones who did a, uh, a technique. If you rebelled against them, they would take a pole, a giant pole with a point on it, impale you up the back through here, and you would just be hanging on it. And that's actually what the Romans took to the next step and perfected into the crucifixion, to dying on the cross, right? That's where the Romans got it. It was from these guys. But they also, with their slaves, the people they took captive, they would literally take hooks into them, and they would drag them into safety. And God says, you cows, with that behavior, if you don't turn around, and sure enough, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't, they went into captivity. The Assyrians came first. Then later, the Babylonians came and got the southern part. But that's what he's talking about, the fish hooks there. That's, how many guys say that God takes this serious? And he's trying to get their attention. I'm warning you in advance, don't do this. The route you're headed is bad. Right? He goes on. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices. Can you see the sarcasm, if you will. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn that leavened bread and a thank offering and brag about your free will offering. Boast about them, Israelites, because this is what you love to do. Wow. He said, now watch this. He tries to get their attention, to get them to turn around, to return to him before judgment happens on this behavior. And notice what he does. What was the technique? Here it is. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town. Yet you what? You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. All right, so he loves us. He keeps trying. He tries another tack. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. And one field had rain, another one had dried up. And people staggered from town to town for water, but they didn't get enough to drink. And yet you what? You still have not returned to me. But God loves us. And you know what? I'm going to try another tack. Here it is. Many times I struck your garden and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you what? Man, that still isn't getting your attention. Are you serious? You have not returned to me, declares the Lord. But he loves us, so he sends another one. I sent plagues among you, as I did in Egypt. I, I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camp. Yet you've what? Even that, you still won't respond. You have not returned to me, says the Lord. And so he tried another one. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were uh, like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Yet you've what? You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. And if you know the account with Israel, he gave them time, northern Israel. But they wouldn't listen to his prophets. They wouldn't listen to his warnings year after year. He tried all these techniques to get their attention. They wouldn't respond. And so sure enough, here comes captivity that you did yourself. Why? Because you reap what you sow. But he saw it coming, but he loved them enough to what? He sent a trial and another trial to try to get them to return to him. Right? Now, as we analyze this passage, number one, how many guys would say that's pretty intense? Well, because God is, sees the danger ahead, and it, sometimes it takes intense intervention, right? Your kid's in the street, right? And you see a car coming, and as a parent, what do you do? Ah, I can't, you know, I don't want to interrupt their self-esteem, right? <laughs> they got to make their own decisions in life. Are you kidding me? What are you doing? Hey! And so sometimes God sees the danger coming, we don't, and we're playing out in the street of this world, and so he has to do things to get our attention, okay? And sometimes pain or problems is his megaphone 
to get your attention. But, but back it up there. The first thing that God did to get their attention before he got into the problems there, uh, he called these ladies cows. Now, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, I have two older sisters and an older brother. But one thing that my two older sisters taught me very clearly as a young brother was three things, three very important things in life. Number one, don't you ever touch your purse, ever. <laughs> right? Number two, don't make fun of them when their boyfriends are over. <laughs> I'm telling you what, don't you ever, don't you ever call your sister, your mom, anybody, your wife, don't ever call them a cow. If you're going to relate, don't even do the animal thing. Skip the animal. Do something neutral, right? But if you're going to relate any woman to any animal, you better pick something graceful and slender like a gazelle or something, right? You can't win with the animal thing. Trust me. But here's the point. God did call these ladies, you cows. Do you think that got their attention? You would think. But why did he call them that? Because what were they doing? He called it out. You're acting like a bunch of fat cows because you're being greedy. You only care about yourself. You're becoming materialistic. I blessed you, but you turn the blessing into the curse. You're getting, getting worldly. You, 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 you're abusing the poor. I blessed you so you could be a blessing to other people, but it's all about bring me some more drinks. You cow. And so God, he, he, he did it, and he says, what? He said, number one, he's not deaf and blind. He sees it. So we tried to get there. The other thing, what was the other thing they were doing? Now it was affecting their relationship with him. And it mentions their so-called worship of him was what? They were just going through the motions. Their heart wasn't in it. They're Israel. You know, God's got the annual feast and the sacrifices. You've got to do all that stuff. Then they even took that stuff and they started bragging about it. <laughs> hey, did you see how much I gave? And we never do that, do we? Play those games. They were going through the motions. It was just some dry, stale, man-made religion. And it's awesome that only Israel ever does that. You know where I'm going. Before we cop on Israel, how's our relationship with God? And we'll even correct people, right? Even non-Christians. I don't know about this Christian religion. Stop right there! It's not a religion. It's a how do we treat it, though? Where did they get this concept that it's a religion? Just another dry, stale, born, man-made ritual. Stand up, sit down, do this. You've got to go on Sundays, this, that, whatever. And if you really want to act spiritual, you give them that plate, and you let everybody know how much you gave, right, and how much you And then, then show them how spiritual you are and show up at least once a month. Not just Christmas and Easter. Where do you think the lost gets the idea that Christianity is just another religion? I think sometimes it's by watching us go through the motions, just like Israel. You know why? Because if you start going through the motions in your walk with Jesus Christ, can I tell you, number one, you better get into Revelation and look at God's rebuke for Ephesus. You've lost your first love. And the word there in the Greek isn't lost. Like, hey, where'd it go? I woke up one day and I can't find it. The word there, as we saw before, means you, it's a divorce. You woke up one day and says, no, I'm not going to love him. I'm not going to seek him. My heart's not in it, but I know enough. i got to get there. I'm just going through the motions. You chose to do that. Ephesus knew all the right stuff. They had great leaders. They knew doctrine. They could take a theology test and whip anybody at it. But God saw, you don't love me anymore. And when you don't love Jesus Christ, that means you're loving something else, like Israel. 
could be materials, could be this wicked world system. And so you know what? Out of love, you know what God will do? He'll pull you out of, listen, the Bible has a term for this, spiritual adultery. Because you're giving your heart to somebody else other than God. Spiritual, and you know what he'll do? He'll use, just like he did Israel, I'm going to send stuff your way to get your attention, to get you back on track. He loves you enough to use trials to get you back on track, to get you to return to him. Okay, but here's our problem. We play the game. We know Christianese. We know the right answer on the test. Right? We all say, hey, well, you know, yeah, we, sang, we just sang songs. God is holy. He's holy. And, and we, you open up in that prayer passage. Hey, man, it's awesome that God saved us. He's holy. We're not, we're not going to hell. He's made us holy through Christ. And we got this intimate, beautiful. And of course, we know he's the top priority. Of course, after all he's done. But guess what? We don't live that way. We say it. Maybe we started out that way. But somewhere along the line, and I don't know where it happened. But you got off track. And we see that because once you're, here's the acid test. Once you're asked to choose between spending time with God or doing something else for God, what do we do? Nine times out of ten, we choose this wicked world system just like Israel. We'd rather watch that ball game. You'd rather watch that sitcom. You'd rather go shopping. <laughs> Come on, man. I, I went last month. Isn't that good enough? Don't you see how much I give? I help sack chairs once in a while. It's like, are you serious? And then when we gather together, because you know you're supposed to do that, because that's what you do when you go to church services. Before the pastor ever gets up and preach, what do you gotta you gotta stand up? You gotta stand up and watch those words on that screen and sing. But your heart's not in it. And you know what? God, he's not deaf, he's not blind, hello. He see the scripture's clear. He sees not just our heart, our thoughts, our motives, our intent. And you know what? Oftentimes, we're giving him wrong worship. Like these people. Watch this. This is crazy. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Then this feeling is gone by Monday. I surrender some. I surrender some. Jesus, I will give you little. I surrender. I stand amazed at my.
You know, that's funny, but then it's not when you realize, again, God's not deaf. He's not blind. He knows what's really going through our minds. He knows the motive of our hearts. He knows if we're just going through the motion. He ain't fooling nobody. Oh, you can fool me. You can fool each other, but you can't fool God. And before you cop on Israel, how could you guys turn into a bunch of fat cows and get all worldly after God blessed you and took care of you? Right? And then you would actually give your heart to something else. And they get all greedy and materialistic. And, and then you re, your, your so-called worship of him was just like that, just to the emotions. And... Folks, we do the same thing. It's called spiritual adultery. The enemy's out there trying to seduce us back into this wicked world system. So out of love, you know what God does? He'll use, just like he did with Israel, trials to get you back on track to rescue you and I from spiritual adultery. Isn't that fantastic? And then what he wants to replace all that stuff with is things like, oh, he's just, he's just, I don't, he's, this is horrible. He wants to give you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control in total abundance. You know, the fruit of the spirit. When you walk and live and keep in step with the spirit of God, when you're living him, loving him, you're oozing with that. Isn't that rotten of him to do? That's what we need. But when we give our hearts our love, all that slowly fades, and it begins to destroy our walk with God and destroys our intimacy with God. And then one day you wake up with this thought in your head, what is going on? It feels like God's a million miles away. You know what happened? God didn't move. You did. And so sometimes God will use circumstances like Israel to get you back on track. In fact, let's put the Amos back into the vernacular for modern times. Chrome translation. Let's take a look at that again. What's God up to? Amos 4, 6 through 11. I gave you an empty cupboard and a lack of food in every church, yet you what? You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld jobs from you when the mortgage payment was still due. I, I allowed one person to keep their job, but withheld it from another. One family I allowed to keep their job. Another one I allowed them to go bankrupt. People lined up for government assistance, and, but it was never enough, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your checkbooks in your bank accounts, and I struck them with blight and mildew and locust devoured your economy, yet you what? You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. In fact, some of you became ill, some of you even died, and yet 
you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now, if you think God allowing trials to come our way to get us back on track in our walk with him is too harsh, you need to think about the alternative to that. Johnny Erickson taught us, she brings that up. She says, do we find repulsive a God who gives the nod to our tragedies? She says, think about the alternative. Imagine a God who didn't deliberately permit the smallest details of our particular sorrows. What if your trials were not screened by any divine plan? What if God insisted on a hands-off policy towards the tragedy swimming your way? Think about what that would mean. First of all, the world would be much worse, incredibly worse, absolutely intolerable for everyone every second. Try to conceive of a Lucifer unrestrained. Left to his own, the devil would make Job's of us all. The third right would have lasted forever. Your head would be mounted on Satan's wall above his fireplace. Human sacrifice would entertain basketball crowds at halftime. Child molesting techniques would be taught at community colleges. The only reasons why things aren't worse, listen, is because God curbs evil. Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat, which means he operates under God's restraints. Evil can only raise its head where God deliberately backs away. But listen, always for reasons that are specific, wise, and good, but often hidden during this present life. Listen, if God didn't control evil, the result would be evil uncontrolled. Listen, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And what he loves and what Jesus Christ died for is a beautiful, loving, intimate, personal relationship with him, the creator of the universe. That's what we need most in the high times, low times, whatever. This isn't heaven. Heaven comes later. We're going to have challenges, but when you got a tight walk with Jesus Christ, when you don't lose your first love, and you stay as on fire and excited just that first day when you got saved, that's what you need to make it through. That's the greatest gift of all. And so if he's got to use a trial to get us back to that, instead of something that is slowly but surely destroying our walk with him, hey, I'm kind of joyful about that. How about you? Okay, but that's just one. Here's another one. He's also to get you not just to return to him. The 16th reason is to get you to witness for him. Because we all know there in Matthew 28, Jesus' last words as he was ascending to the right hand of the Father, we call that passage what? The grand suggestion. No, it's for those people that we pay to do that. Those people who have that. No, it's called the great commission for all of us to get out there and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they get saved, we make disciples, disciplined learners. And, and we're always doing that. Yeah, sometimes we act like this guy. His name is Jonah. Let's take a look at what happened to him and what did God use to motivate him to do what God said to do in the first place, right? Here it is, Jonah chapter four. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Remember, those are the Assyrians. Remember the ones that tell you the fish hooks, it's people alive. Rough crowd, rough crowd, right? And preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, God said. But Jonah what? Man, he said, look at these. Yeah, God, this is awesome. I can't believe it. I get a privilege to share your mercy with these wicked people that they can be saved too. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. Jonah what? He ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, which is right there on the coast there, a a seaport there, where he found a ship and bound for that port. Now, why did he do that? When we were over there in uh, Israel, we were actually there on location to Joppa. And there was a Jewish superstition back in the day They believed that God's power stopped at the land. That the ocean was full of evil and rotten things and monsters and things of that nature. And so they only believed, it was a superstition, but that's what they believed, that God's power stopped at the land. So that's why he was going to the ocean, because he thought he was what? Getting out of the boundaries of God. But what did he find out? 
No, God's the God of the land and the sea, right? Do you see what's going on there, right? So after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. He thought he was free and clear. He made it to the sea. Oh, no, you're not. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him to Jonah, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He said, pick me up and throw me in the sea. And he replied, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And now the Lord provided a what? A huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Right? Now, just a little side note there for the skeptics. I've got at least two different accounts, historical accounts, of people actually have been swallowed by whales, and they've actually survived. It's historical accounts. So this is not so, well, you, that, you can't take that literally. That's symbolic of, no, it's not. It really happened. Okay? In fact, what's really interesting, and talk about the sovereignty of God using Jonah's disobedience to prepare him, not only to motivate him to get him to do what he said in the first place, to go witness to the Ninevites, but to prepare him for that witness. One of the accounts that I got said that this guy who was in the belly of this whale before he got rescued, that obviously in the stomach is what? The gastric fluids. And the gastric fluids being in there, he survived because there's air in there. It turned, it bleached his skin white, also his hair white. And so the account says what? So then Jonah, the whale, there barfs up Jonah, right? Right? And so put it all together. How many guys just say a guy getting barfed out of a whale, popping white, would kind of get your attention? Then do the history... The Ninevites worship the fish god. So here comes this guy, finally obedient after all God did, and he begins to say, I got a word from God for you. Do you think they paid attention? Do you see how God set the whole thing up? But here's my point. How many guys would say, I don't know, you've had some rough days, I've had some rough days, but getting swallowed by a whale, being stuck in that belly for three days, is kind of a bad day. So my point is, why would God, because this is Jonah. This isn't Jonah, the guy that God never knew, or Jonah, some, you know, whatever, pagan dude, whatever. No, this, is, this was a child of God. Jonah was a prophet of God. So why in the world would God allow a whale to suck up this guy, literally? Why would God do something like that? Well, he tells us, to use that, he sent a hardship Jonah's way to what? To get him to do what God had told him to do in the first place. Did you guys know that God wants other people besides us to be saved? What a concept. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, he's not willing that any should perish, right? And we know that, but what do we do? We sit around like Jonah. In fact, Jonah, later, uh, God rebuked him again because Jonah, what? He was more upset that he lost his shade that he was getting, his personal comfort over that plant, than the people being in danger of going to hell. It's a good thing we don't do that. It's a good thing we don't have that attitude with Jonah, like, oh, I don't want to witness those wicked people. Did you sin? I sin. Well, yeah, that, you, you, Pastor Billy, and you, and Pastor Bobby, I heard your testimonies, all those drugs and immorality and occult stuff. You guys, you guys really need Jesus. But me, I'm not that bad of a person. Your sin may have been different than my sin, but it carries the same penalty. We all deserve to go to hell. And so Jonah kind of had this attitude like, but not those people. They don't deserve to be saved. We wouldn't have that attitude, would we? But come on, those are icky people. I mean, come on. I, clean, I wear jackets like Pastor Billy. I'm, I'm cleaned up. I take a shower. Right? I don't, I don't, those people scare me. They stink. 
Oh, come on. We hire, we pay evangelists to take care of that. We wouldn't have the same attitude as Jonah today. Unfortunately, we do. And so God's consistent. Sometimes, you know what? It may not be a literal whale. Sometimes God will send a whale of a circumstance your way to get you to do what he says to do. And hopefully you get it right the first time. One of the reasons why, I mean, I felt like I always had a passion for the lost. But God put it in turbo mode when I was in Bible college. And I felt prompted of him to witness to two guys that were always working on their cars at, at, a, at an auto shop in Sacramento. And for two weeks, man, it was just heavy on my heart. I'm, and the thing is, I was always, they were right on my way home, going to work, going to school. I'm always passing by. And every time I thought, oh, yeah, I got to get in there. I need to go in there and share the gospel. I need to go in there and share the gospel. And for two weeks, I was disobedient. And I came home from work. I turned on the news, and on the news, it said two guys were hit and killed in a car accident, and it was those two guys. I dropped on my knees and I said, God, would you please forgive me for losing my heart of compassion for the lost? And all I can hope and pray is that somebody was more faithful than me and I had turned into a Jonah. I'm just too busy. I'm more concerned about my own self-comfort and my calendar than witnessing. God, please, I hope you sent somebody more faithful than me. I'm not saying it's always been perfect from that day forward. But boy, that was a of how easy it can get. And you stop witnessing. It's kind of like this guy here in Vegas. He did the same thing. Watch this. The bigger the name you are, the better the hotel the promoter will put you in. So like the newsboys always stay in, you know, the Hilton and I always get put in like the bring your own sheet suites, you know. <laughs> Nasty hotels. Well, I was playing Vegas one time, and uh, my wife was with me, and they put us in this hotel. It was called Low Costa. And I walked in. It was horrible. It was the most unprofessional hotel I've ever been in my life. It smelled. There was a 15-year-old kid behind the counter running the place. He was making out with a girl when I walked in, you know. There was, like, extra value meal number seven on the table. It had been supersized, so this was an important date to him, you know. And Because you want to do that. You want to impress your dates, you know. Like, I used to do that, like, you know, because they always tell you to impress your date, order for her. Well, duh, when you pull up, the speaker's right by your window. (laughs) So sure. Lean over, shout. Yeah, that's romantic. (laughs) So it's making out with a girl. I walk in, and I'm just, I know it's going to be a bad hotel. I'm like, and he stops, and uh, he's embarrassed. I meet him, and uh, I meet his sister, and I start to, um, what? No, no, his sister walked in at the time I met her. No, sorry. This is Vegas, not Arkansas. He, he's so unprofessional. He's got a t-shirt on. He's got the baggiest pants I've ever seen. I, I know baggy pants are popular. And I actually inform because I've got a friend that's a cop. And um, he loves it because now they can catch gang members faster. Because, you know, gang members wear the baggy pants and they can't run from the cops. You know, it's like, oh, it's a cop. Sorry, waddle. Waddle as fast as you can. You know? I'm like, why don't they just hide in their pants? Oh, it's a cop.
He takes me and my wife around, and they had built the rooms as they could find spare parts. I know this because we were staying in room 10. There was a big wooden one, a small metal zero nailed to the door, right? So it looks like we're staying in room one degree. They open up the door, there's like shag carpet that had never been raked. The bedspread is made by those two famous designers, you know, uh, Polly and Esther, you know. (laughs) Horrible place. My wife actually goes, oh, they left a mint on the pillow, which is a sign of a good hotel. So she walks over and reaches for the mint, and it scurries under the sheets, right? Well, they had built this big workout facility in the back, so I wanted to get out of the room, so I went in there, and I uh, was going to work out, and I walked in, and there was nobody in the place. And so, but when I walked in, in the middle of the room was this big hot tub, and I don't like hot tubs, okay? I have a phobia against them. I know you guys probably like them, but to me, a hot tub is like a big hot cup of water that a thousand strangers have teabagged their bodies in, right? <laughs> Nasty, okay? Especially hotel hot tubs. Have you guys ever seen that brown foam floating around in there? What is that? Honey, you go on. I'm going to get in the cappuccino. You know. I, I feel the same way about birthday cake. It's the only food that you can actually blow and spit on, and people still line up to eat it. Well, that's the same thing about a hot tub. I don't like it, but this one was clean, and I'd been working out for two, two and a half uh, minutes, and... Uh, my body was sore, and so I went over and I showered and I put on my trunks and I got in the hot tub and I closed my eyes and I leaned back and I got the jets going and it was awesome for a second. And then all of a sudden behind me, there was a dry sauna door that I didn't see. And all of a sudden I heard it just go, and I turned and looked. He was like 270 pounds, like 5'3". I could have stood next to him. We would have looked like the number 10, Okay. And I'd, I'd gotten water in my eyes, and I was trying to look at him. And as he's walking toward me past the showers, obviously not going to shower, I'm looking at him, and it looks like he has on a Speedo and a sweater, okay? <laughs> Only as you probably guessed, <laughs> as he got closer, I realized he didn't have a shirt on at all, right? He was the hairiest guy I've ever You know how most guys will have a little lint in their belly button? He had a pillow, okay? <laughs> Get a pillow. And he walks past the showers. He walks over to the hot tub. And I'm going, no, 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 please, please, please. And he leans over and beads a sweater dripping off his little pink face into the hot tub. <gasps> Boom! And then he just cannonballs in. And now water spilling out everywhere. And I'm swimming around trying to keep my mouth above water, you know. I look over at him. He's putting water in his mouth, swishing around and going... wigging out and I've got to get away from him but you know I'm a Christian so I don't want to hurt his feelings so I say something I've never said before in my life I go oh man it's time for me to go to work (laughs) I know because I don't work so so I was still going around in the little whirlpool thing and I grabbed the ladder and I was about halfway out I was up the stairs I was halfway out the guy goes hey before you go can I ask you a question I was like yeah what do you want and he goes do you know who Jesus Christ is And all of a sudden, I turned around and I said, uh, what? And he goes, well, I was just wondering if you knew who Jesus Christ was. And I turned around and I said, uh, yeah. It's funny you should ask me that because I know exactly who he is. Uh, He's our Lord and Savior. And this guy in a hot tub in Vegas looked at me and he, he just said, cool. I just didn't want to miss an opportunity. Can you believe that? And all of a sudden, I did what we should all do as Christians. I looked past all the physical stuff. And I looked deep into this guy's heart, and I saw a heart 
that beat for Christ. I saw a heart that got the idea that God loved us so much he gave his only begotten son. And I remember just standing there looking at him and looking at the water. (laughs) But he's a Christian brother. I did what everybody would have done. I pulled a chair up next to the hot tub and I sat and talked to him. (laughs) Oh. Not just with wrong worship, but what's going through our heart with now witnessing. God's not deaf. He's not blind. And how many opportunities does he send our way? But it's like, ooh, so it's icky people. Or, or you know what? I, I, just, I just want to get in the hot tub. I just, I just want to chill. I, maybe, maybe later. It's the same mentality as Jonah. Witnessing is not a pain. Witnessing is the greatest privilege that we can have as a born-again Christian. Aren't you glad that somebody witnessed to you? And through the gospel of Christ, you got rescued from hell and you know you're going to heaven. Isn't that fantastic? How could you sit on that? How could you not have a compassion of people around you and and never get around to it? And that's the statistics. 95% of people who profess to be Christians in the church never once, never once, lead one soul to Jesus Christ. And as far as I know, that's the same exact statistics that still have been that way for 11 years now that have been here in Vegas. 95% of people in Las Vegas do not know Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. Do you think that's a quinky dink? Which means, think about all those people. Every week, they go to church services. They get loved on. They get taught. They get prayed over. They get counseled. They get equipped in the Word of God. And none of it translates in other people being saved. Something's wrong with that. And so pay attention, Christian. Maybe sometimes, just maybe, the reason why God sent you that whale of a circumstance is to get you back to doing the most amazing thing ever, telling somebody else about Jesus. Because there's nothing more thrilling than leading a soul to Christ and literally watch them change before your eyes like what happened to you. Amen? One more real quick, and that is this. Another thing that God will be doing through our circumstances is he'll teach you the power of praise. And this is something, actually, I learned early on as a Christian, uh, even back in Bible college days. Man, it just hit me out of the blue. It was a shocker, but God showed me, how do you get out of that? Okay, let's take a look. at This is what we see here in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us what? Once in a while, offer to God a sacrifice. Oh, I'm sorry. Let us through Jesus, therefore, uh, let us what? When it works out with your calendar... Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation. Let us, what, let's do it again. Through Jesus, therefore, let us, whenever it feels right, when it's convenient. No, what's the word there? Continually offer to God what? Not just praise. What's the operative there? A sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. Why? Because guess what? For with such sacrifices, God is what? Please. How many guys want to please God? Raise your hand. The rest of you are here. I'm glad you're here. We're going to help you out here in a second. Okay? But if you ever wonder, like, oh, God, I don't know how to please you, God. What am I supposed to do? Here's three things that will keep you busy every single day. Right? He says here in this context, you want to please God, then what do you do? He says, one, you could do good things in his name. Number two, you could share things as Christians. Right? And, and those things. But number three, the first one he mentioned there, is you can offer up to God continually a sacrifice of praise. Okay? And here's the problem. We, we say, oh yeah, that's a great verse. Uh, I love praising God. We love to praise God when things are looking up, 
But what do we refuse to do when things are not looking so well? Praise. We don't praise him. But he said what? Just when things are good? He said continually. Never saw us. So high times, low times. That's what that word means. Right? Because that's the game that we play. Right? And, and so we, we say when things are up and we say, well, come on, what do you mean praise God? Things aren't going good. Exactly. Isn't he worthy of your praise no matter what's going on? Isn't saving you and me from hell enough? What more has he got to do? Right? Continually offer a sacrifice of praise. But that's what we, we, we love when we praise God. But, but wait a second. You praise him when things are bad? Are you, I mean, if I did that, that would be a sacrifice. What a concept. It's exactly what he says. He says, you know what? That pleases me. Because you know what? That means you love me no matter what's going on. And that's also a good sign that you've got a powerful relationship with him, which is what we need to make it through anything in life. Right? And, and so, so guess what? Sometimes God will use challenges to teach us this great lesson, the power of praise, okay, so that we could either learn to pout because of our pain or offer up a sacrifice of praise to God in spite of our pain and learn the wonderful thing he's trying to teach us. Listen, sometimes you can't change your circumstances. But the power to make it through your circumstances is not by God taking you out of your problem, over the problem, under the problem, around the problem. Sometimes you're going to go through it. But you know that you're not alone. Like Daniel and his buddies learned. Christ is right there with you. And can't you still praise him? God makes it simple with this passage here. Did you know there's only two times you need to praise God? That's it. You can, we can all remember two things, right? Amen? Here it is. This is profound. You praise God when you're alone. And when you're with somebody. What a concept. Right? And when you do that, and that's a way of life, because he's worthy of praise. We trust him. He's worthy of praise. And you pray, then you find the way out of your mess. And this is what we see in the psalmist. In fact, the psalmist is like, he's rebuking himself. How could you even think about getting all downcast? and blah, 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 Right? What's he say? For Psalm 42, 5. Why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? What are you doing? God's God. Why why are you so disturbed within me? What are you doing? Get out of that trap. What's he say? Instead, put your hope where? In God. Not your circumstance, not your feelings, none of that stuff. Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The power to make it through your challenging circumstances, your dark circumstances, your hard circumstances, your disturbing circumstances, even a deep, dark depression comes, listen, and not getting rid of your problems. It's in praising God in spite of your problems. Because your focus is on the Father, and he gives you the supernatural ability through the power of praise to make it through. Now, let me give you an example. I, I, again, I learned this in Bible college. It was crazy. It was a, a, a time where, man, it's like two days in a row. It was like this deep, dark cloud just hovered over my head. And I was depressed. And you think, well, so what, Pastor, really? But listen, for my personality, if you haven't caught on yet, that's not normal. Right? I'm usually kind of corny, chock full of humor and all kinds of wacky stuff and all that stuff. And, and literally, the only time literally that, that I wind down is when I am severely ill, which, praise God, doesn't happen very often. But I do have to say, for some strange reason, it's during those times my wife seems really happy. <laughs> we'll talk about that later, honey. But anyway, uh, but no, seriously. And, and, and so, but it's, so all of a sudden, for like two days, I'm depressed. In fact, got to the point where I think I was getting depressed about being depressed. You ever been there? All right? 
And so there I was. It was marching in, I think, into the, the third day there. And I'm sitting there. I'm getting ready for the day. I'm in the shower, and I'm just... You know, it was like that. How many guys were tortured growing up? Your parents forced you to watch Hee Haw. <laughs> remember that thing? Hee Haw. And all you guys remember is that junior sample. BR549. What, 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 is, what are you doing? The only thing I could resonate with that show was every once in a while they pop up in the cornfield and go, hey, we live in town, 420. Yeah, I live in those towns in Kansas. But anyway, other than that, the rest of it was like, are you kidding me? What is this, a torture device? Does the CIA use this to get people to reveal secrets in foreign countries? What is it? But I was brainwashed because they had this song they sang all the time. Gloom, despair, and agony on the wall. Deep, dark, depression. It's still stuck in my brain. Pray for me. I mean, that's how I felt during this time. I called the hee-haw cloud, came on my head. Doo, gloom, deflare, uh, uh, and I just couldn't think of nothing. It was like this uh, spiritual black hole, and just nothing was good and dark and depressing. Uh, and so there I was in the shower. This is going on for a couple of days. This is totally abnormal. And then all of a sudden, I kid you not, right in the midst of that, a thought goes through my head, and it was just simply this, bang, can you still praise the Lord? And I'm going, what? Because I was, you get, you get used to nursing that. Oh, man, poor man, this and And it just jolted me. And I, yeah, that's, whoa, yeah. What more has he got to do that I could still praise him? Do I only praise him when things go my way? Or? And so I kid you not, as a young Christian, I was there in the shower, and I started, okay, I'll praise the Lord. Honestly, my heart was not in. I was like that, going through the motions. But out of obedience, it was very perfunctory. And I'm just, I don't know, I, was, I forget what I was singing. Like, I, will, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I'll enter his courts with praise. Yeah, whatever. And I, I kid you not, that whole first song was very profound. I move into the second song, and it's, I'm starting to get into it a little bit more. Right? I kid you not, by the time I got to that third song, man, it was like something literally popped. And it was like my attitude changed. I'm really into it now. And I'm praising God at the top of my lungs in that apartment complex. We, and the people down below, I'm sure they loved it too. Uh, yeah, whatever. But literally, I, I mean, literally, is by that third time, all of a sudden, that deep, dark depression, the hee-haw thing, boom, it went away. Because I was praising God. I was sacrificing up to him praise. And here's what happened. That sacrifice of praise returned my focus on the Lord. I became focused on the Father, not my feelings. I was able to transcend the situation because I was focused on the Savior, not my situation. Bang, it went away. And I'm telling you, you're going to need that as a Christian. It doesn't just please God, but there is a payoff. When you learn to praise God at all times, not just in the good times, man, oh man, you have some powerful ability to make it through all your problems. I don't care how deep it is. Even the loss of a... Loved one. How many of you guys ever sang this praise song, this classic hymn, and you had no idea the context? His name was Horatio Spafford, and his family were members of Fullerton Avenue Presbyterian Church. And Spafford and his wife had learned what it meant to trust the Lord completely in every situation. First, the Spafford's only son was killed by scarlet fever at the age of four. And then a year later, he invested heavily in real estate in the shores of Lake Michigan, but every single one of the ones that he invested in got burned up in the great Chicago fire. So aware of the tolls and these disasters that had taken on his family, Horatio decided to take his wife and four daughters on a holiday to England and then travel throughout Europe. Yet just as they were ready to set sail, a last-minute business issue forced Horatio to delay 
So not wanting to ruin the family holiday, he told his family to go on ahead as planned, and he'd catch up later on the other side of the Atlantic, but they never made it. The ship collided with the English sailing ship and sank within 20 minutes. And even though Horatio's wife, Anna, was able to cling to a piece of floating wreckage, all four of their daughters died. And the next thing you know, he gets this horrible telegram, only two words long from his wife, saved alone. So he drops everything, immediately boards the next available ship near his grieving wife to be near her. And during the voyage, I kid you not, the captain of the ship called him in and says, quote, I believe we are now passing the place where the ship was wrecked and your daughters died. He goes back to his cabin and he writes down these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul over the grave of his four daughters. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless state and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Wow. How many times have we sung that? We have no idea the context. True praise does not depend on our feelings, but in spite of our feelings. True praise to God is not centered on ourselves. It's centered on the Savior, no matter our circumstances. And Horatio's hymn brings you and I back to the bottom line that, listen, it's our relationship with God that will hold us fast in all of our trials, including the loss of a loved one. And sometimes our trials are an opportunity to teach us this powerful praise the uplifting power of praise so that the problems of life, because they're going to come, heaven comes later, but so that the problems of life don't drag us down. And sometimes it's the shepherd's way. He'll take away something that you thought you had to have, but he takes it away so he can give you something better. Like this shepherd learned. Watch this. This is cool. Hey gang, this is Ray Carmen coming to you from over here at Namrack Farms and this morning we had a beautiful new set of twins as you see right here behind me this is their mama and they're both together a little boy and a little girl but i want you to notice something uh, see what mama's doing right there somehow this morning before i got here mama got separated from this little girl and now mama has decided to reject that little girl so that means guess what the shepherd gets to take his little lamb home and raise it which is going to make my little son Truett really happy because he wanted to bottle raise a lamb. But I saw a lesson in this, and I want to share it with you. Sometimes in our life, someone who's really important to us, who means a lot to us, who we think our survival depends upon that person, they reject us. They, re they turn their back on us, and they leave us alone. They won't let us have the milk that we think we need. They won't feed us. They won't groom us. They won't even clean us off. This little lamb is nasty. She's been born for half a day, and her mama hasn't cleaned her off. And as you see, she's butting her, and now she's afraid of her. And oftentimes we wonder, why did that person who was so important to me, did they leave me? Why did they abandon me? Why are they hurting me? Why are they rejecting me? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's because the shepherd wants to pick you up and take you home, clean you up and feed you himself. And in that way, you will form an intimate, close relationship with the shepherd. 
I've got a lamb right now that we started bottle feeding last year. He's now a year old, a big ram. He's like a big puppy dog. I come in the field, he runs to me. He loves me. He wants to be with me. My daughter who did most of the feeding, man, he is excited when she shows up. So I'm looking forward to raising this little girl right here because I know when I get done, she'll run to me. She'll love me. She'll stick with me no matter what. So maybe it's just that when someone's left you or abandoned you that you think life is terrible. Maybe it's just because the shepherd wants to pick you up and spend some intimate time with you. Which is what we need most of all. You hear me say it all the time. Don't listen to these hucksters. You get saved, you're not going to have trials, you're in perfect life and perfect health and perfect wealth and Cadillac. That's not biblical. This is not heaven. Heaven comes later. You're going to have trials. But you can have joy in the midst of it. Because sometimes God will take something away to give you something even better called himself. And when you got a tight, intimate walk with Jesus Christ, with the shepherd, you can make it through anything. Till one day, we'll be in a place beyond our wildest dreams that he's prepared for us. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more privations, no more having to say goodbye, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. It's all gone. And so if he has to use some trials to teach us that powerful lesson, to help us to make it until he comes and gets us, amen for that, amen? amen. Praise God. You can be joyful about that. But not only that, sometimes he'll do it because he's trying to purify your service. But we're out of time, so we'll have to get to that. Lord willing. Next time, let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks. Let's be honest, if you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. 
even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what do we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know, it's actually on historical record, that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so, even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us, this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. 
Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.